this society still doesn't understand what it is to not continuously kill us as a people because the color of our skin is hurtful and it just re-traumatizes each time. Kenethia Alston lost her son in 2018 when police officers in Washington, D.C. shot and killed him. It's a story we've had to tell too many times. And that's why activists in the United States are starting to push for a solution that they say will end that far too common narrative. They want to abolish the police entirely. The idea isn't new, but it was never quite mainstream in the U.S. before these most recent protests against racism and police brutality. It seems a lot of people are starting to say, we tried reform and it failed. So it's time to try something new. But abolition is a controversial alternative. A Gallup poll in July showed that most people in the U.S. oppose it. So who are the people supporting abolition, and how do they propose getting there? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I met Kenethia Alston while working on an episode for Al Jazeera's award-winning documentary show, Fault Lines. It's about the protests this summer, the history of police reform in the U.S., and a look at what's next. And you're going to hear a lot of voices in this episode because we spoke to a lot of people for the documentary. Kavitha Chikuru, a senior producer on the team, is the one who approached me with the idea back in June. Over the years, the Fault Lines team has proven to be pretty dedicated to covering issues related to U.S. policing. Our show has done upwards of 15 episodes just in the past five years on police brutality, police reform, police issues in the U.S., right? But two subjects they hadn't touched yet were the push for abolition and the story of Marquise Alston, Kenithia's son. He was shot and killed on June 12, 2018. Here's how his mother remembers that day. I was headed to dinner, and I got a call from one of Marquise's friends. And as soon as I answered, I heard the panting in the phone. (sighs) And so I said, what's wrong? And she said, Marquise has been shot. And I said, okay, what hospital are we going to? Because, of course, I thought positive. And she said, we're not going to the hospital. He's gone. I got home, and, of course, on the 10 o'clock news, it was there. I had not been notified. I didn't sleep that night because I was just waiting for them to come. And they didn't get there until about 2 o'clock p.m. the next day. Marquise was 22 years old at the time of his killing. Police have been on scene here for hours. They tell us the shooting happened just after 7 o'clock. Investigators say a group of guys were out in that alley. When officers approached them, that's when shots were fired. Now, that's the police account of the story. Kenithia Alston says the truth of what happened that day is still unclear. But we'll get to that. Our conversation was hard. She was understandably emotional, but wanted to get the story out. 
We talked about how the police handled or mishandled the aftermath of Marquise's killing. Kavitha was with us that day, too. I think the main thing with Miss Alston is that I'm still in awe of her strength to be able to talk about what happened to her son, while she also continues to try and get the answers and the justice that she deserves as a mom. It's been agonizing, traumatizing, disheartening, dreadful. I've just been trying to get simple questions answered. What what initially took place to cause this to happen? And I think about what's happened with her son and then what's happened afterwards with the city of D.C. and the police department. In the aftermath of these killings that we've all seen, unfortunately, one of the things that you don't often see is what the families have to do afterwards. Every step she's had to take, always pushing up back against the city, is really, it's just staggering. And one of the things that she said is that any time another Black person is killed by police, she then relives her own trauma, you know? Each time I hear a life lost due to the police, it brings forth so much anxiety, so much pain. It hurts. It hurts. And I say, here we go again. Here we go again. And unfortunately, it keeps happening. So it means that she has to go through it again and again. So we interviewed her in July, and she had just sued the D.C. police. What can you tell people about that case and what's happened to her since then? On the two-year anniversary of the killing of her son, Miss Alston filed a civil lawsuit against the city of D.C. and the Metropolitan Police Department, specifically to get, just simply put, to get answers, right? And one step of that was getting the body camera footage from the day and the moment that her son was shot. At the same time, of course, D.C. was ablaze with the George Floyd protests. The local government passed a law forcing D.C. police to release body camera footage from incidents where an officer shot and killed someone. That legislation was passed prior, and then we interview her. And then a few days after we interviewed her, she had a voicemail from the city. Hi, good morning. This message is for Ms. Kenethia Alston. Saying, we'll be releasing the body cam footage today. Uh, We just wanted to contact you, reach out to you in advance and let you know it will be released today. And so she didn't have a chance to consent to what was going to be released, but they released two things. The first was what's known as a community briefing video. Essentially, the DC Police Department, they showed portions of the body camera footage edited together and they circled an item that they said was a gun in Marquise's hand. But even then, you know, the quality of this footage is extremely poor. And that's another question that I think the lawyer's team has. Why is this footage so poor when, if you look at body camera footage that we see In other D.C. interactions as well across the country, the quality is not that poor. But so they released this community briefing video that is essentially MPD's account of what happened. Kenethia Alston's lawyer pressed the police further and was able to see the unblurred, unedited version of the footage. But there's missing audio in some parts. And Kavitha says the story is still not clear. The problem with that footage is that 
It hasn't given Miss Alston the answers that she needs. Miss Alston, and consequently the public, don't know why the police went after Marquise. One of the cops, you can see in the footage, he's on his phone and he's scrolling, but you don't know what he's looking at. The lawyer's team has now been able to see the unblurred footage. He was on Instagram. And then all of a sudden, they drop everything and they get out of the car and they start running after Marquise. And we, we, so we don't know why. A lot of people point to Marquise Alston's story and Kenethia Alston's fight for justice over the past two years and say they show exactly why police reforms don't work. Officers in D.C. wear body cams now. They'd had anti-bias training before Marquise was killed, but that didn't save his life, nor is it providing his family with answers. That's why many activists in the U.S. are now looking to a different solution instead. For example, there's this group in D.C. that Kavita and I interviewed for the documentary. We met outside because of the pandemic, speaking six feet apart and through masks. They're pushing to defund the local police and ultimately abolish them entirely. These activists and organizers put it really well for them. The police don't make them feel safe. We've been funneling a lot of money into police reforms, and it's not actually keeping anyone any more safe. I have no faith in an institution that needs to be reminded not to choke me. What has happened over the years is that the police have become the place where people uh, call for everything, right? We are creating work for police that not only does the police not need to do that, nobody, nobody needs to do that work. Nobody needs to be out there criminalizing um, people experiencing homelessness. They need homes. Nobody needs to be criminalizing people who are experiencing drug addiction. They need health care. One of the things they said, and it's easy to see if you go to what's known as Ward 7 and 8 in D.C., these are some of the most policed areas in the city. And they also happen to be some of the areas in the city with the least amount of resources, right? But instead, the city has put millions and millions and millions of dollars into the police department. These are areas that are a food desert. In Ward 7, there's not like a major grocery store within two miles. There's a lack of resources for things that truly make people safe. So affordable housing, nearby and quality health care. Like, you know, as one of the activists, Dominique, told us, there's not a hospital with a maternity ward close to them. In basically any other ward, you have multiple choices. Over here, we don't. We actually have no place to give birth. And that's the type of thing that, like, literally doesn't keep you safe. Like, when I think about even thinking about getting pregnant, I'm like, wow, that's dangerous over here as a Black woman. For Black women who already have a high maternal mortality rate, that's something that, as she said, literally does not make them safe. It was striking several of them when we were talking to them. I remember very vividly they had these masks that actually say exactly what they want you to know, which is defund MPD, Metropolitan Police Department. I think to a lot of people, getting rid of police, defunding them, abolishing the police system sounds like a very extreme and radical solution and not a solution at all, really. Right. What's the rationale for abolition? What's behind that push? For years, you've seen the push for reform, but reform isn't changing what police do. And so why put money into body cameras when the body camera is not going to stop a police from killing someone? Put the money 
into something they need, like a community center. That, I think that is really what's driving it. What Kavitha just described is like the elevator pitch for police abolition. But we wanted to know more. And so we went to someone who's literally written a book on it. My name's Alex Vitale. I'm a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. And I've written a book called The End of Policing. That's kind of the culmination of 30 years of work on the issue of policing in the United States and internationally. He says that what his years of research have shown him is that the U.S. policing system as it stands now doesn't work. When we look at how the police responded to the protests, I mean, it made our argument for us. The police are violence workers who have not been reformed and who are engaged essentially in a politically motivated counter-protest against these movements. And I think part of it is because they understand that these movements are an existential threat to them. Nobody was holding up signs saying, more body cameras for police, more money for police training, right? That's how they got out of the last crisis was with more money and more resources. And now people are like, no, we want to eliminate your overtime budget. We want to quit hiring police. We want to take away your military toys. And they're not standing for that. And they're fighting back. When Professor Vitali refers to the last crisis, he's talking about 2014 when police killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner in New York City. Protests erupted across the country. Barack Obama was the president then, and he responded with a plan. A plan that Professor Vitali says failed. People feel like they were sold a bill of goods five years ago in the wake of the police killings of Mike Brown and Eric Garner and so many others. The Obama administration came out with this task force on 21st century policing report that laid out all these reforms and a lot of cities, including Minneapolis, adopted a lot of these reforms and nothing substantial has changed. We covered those reforms in depth in the documentary, so you'll have to watch to learn more. But for the sake of time in this episode, here's the abridged version. There were two main prongs to the Obama administration approach. One was a set of reforms that were laid out and money was given to departments to help get them to implement these reforms. And then the other part of the equation was federal interventions. So the money was meant to fund trainings and body camps for accountability. The federal interventions were supposed to monitor police departments to make sure they were on the right track. But Professor Vitali says... None of it worked. And none of it really was going to be able to work. Because politically, our elected leaders continue to task the police with the job of putting a lid on mass homelessness, mass economic precarity, failed schools, the whole nine yards, youth violence, domestic violence. And they're not capable of fixing those things. And so in the process, they are using arrests and violence. And this is being done in a discriminatory fashion, both because there's a history of racism in policing and because the political leaders have sent this policing apparatus at black and brown communities primarily. 
So when our, our elected leaders tell the police to wage a war on drugs and a war on crime and a war on terror and a war on gangs and a war on disorder, there's going to be violence and it's going to be racially discriminatory. And then to try to paper over that with reforms that are designed to make the public feel better about being criminalized, that's just, it's not working. It doesn't fly. So the natural follow-up to that for many activists is what would work? They have realized, building on decades of, of organizing and research and activism, that what we really need is to address fundamental questions of racial and economic injustice in our society. And that means shifting resources from criminalization to building communities, to building up individuals instead of throwing them away, which is really what the criminal justice system does. And so people were talking about systematically divesting from systems of criminalization, jails, police, prisons, and shifting those resources into community-identified needs drug treatment, mental health counseling, youth centers, jobs for young people, putting counselors back in schools, etc. So why do you think there has been such a visceral reaction to the call to defund police and then to abolish the police? Well, of course, there's two things going on here. One is there's the right-wing reaction that wants to intentionally mislead people and mischaracterize the movement because they want authoritarian strategies. They benefit from the existing arrangements in which social problems are managed through policing so that we can continue to reproduce intensive inequality. But then there are also people who maybe live in communities where public safety is an everyday concern, who have been told for decades that the only tool they can have to produce public safety is more police. So they're worried that the one tool they've been given is going to be taken away. Those are valid fears. No one wants their neighborhood to become more dangerous. But Professor Vitali says abolitionists know that, and their plan takes that concern into account. No one is talking about flipping some magical switch and tomorrow there are no police. No one's talking about making communities less safe. Just the opposite. This is a public safety movement led by people who have experienced a profound lack of safety in their lives. We have to do more work to explain to people that what we're talking about is putting in new ways of producing public safety that we think will actually work better than just relying on armed police. Professor Vitali, I went to your Twitter feed and pinned at the very top. You have this tweet from 2018. Amazing meeting with folks in Ferguson trying to chart a new path for police reform through community empowerment. Do you think it's realistic to propose retraining some of these officers for community-centered work? So what, one of the liberal mistakes, right, is thinking that we can turn violence workers into social workers, that we can turn armed police into clinicians. And to the extent that we want to turn police into social workers, we should just hire social workers. To the extent that we want to turn police into housing managers, we should just hire housing managers. 
To the extent that we want to turn police into guidance counselors in schools, we should just hire guidance counselors in schools. Police are by their nature violence workers. Their authority comes from their capacity and willingness and authorization to use violence. And we need to remove that violence from our lives in as many ways as we possibly can. Final question here. How far away do you think we are from that, from the end of policing? I think we got a long way to go. I mean, we've had this incredible blip in a way of public attention, and that has created a tremendous amount of political space, I think. But, you know, we got a lot of people out there to convince. We've got to create a majoritarian politics. We've got to work across race lines. We've got to really turn this into a broader movement. And I see that happening, but movements take a long time. Look at the civil rights movement, which begins in the wake of World War II, percolates, stuff starts happening in the early 60s, and it's not until the mid to late 60s that we get real legislation, and then we still have more work to do. So I said that was the last question, but you just made me think of a follow-up. It's very short. For all of that to happen, does it matter who's president? As we head up into an election very soon. It matters, not, but not just who's president. You know, it, a, a president where Congress is in the hands of the other party is very limited in what they can do. A president who is acting outside of the politics of big city mayors is going to be very limited in what they can do. So this, this has to be about so much more than how, how we vote in November. It's got to be about what, what's happening with local city council races, what's happening with building real, robust, independent community organizations that are focused on the real needs of the community, not just what contract they're going to get from the city next year. We still have a long road to, to travel. Kavitha, after doing this episode, what is your takeaway? What do you think surprised you or what do you think you learned? That is a very good question. Think about it. I'll, I'll start. Yeah. <laughs> I think what surprised me was seeing the effort and the strength it takes for someone who's in the throes of grieving. You know, a mother is grieving the loss of her son. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you want justice or if you want answers about what happened in the case of a family member, you actually have to fight for it. So you're not allowed to just grieve and mourn. It's a long, hard fight. And I think that was not something I ever really thought about. Yeah, and I mean, even though it is hugely important that people know stories like what happened to Marquise. As a journalist, I always feel, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, I feel you don't want to be a vulture about their grief. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> you know, you don't want to re-traumatize people. Right. But you have, to, so you have to balance that, I think, with hoping that it'll be helpful to them in some way, right? Miss Alston is amazing. It's amazing that she has the strength to do this. Like she said, she does it for her granddaughter. It's awful, though, that they've been put in that position. And that's The Take. If what you've heard here has piqued your interest, there's plenty more to learn from the Fault Lines documentary. It's an emotional and educational journey, as well as a visual masterpiece, 
All credit to video editor Adrian Hasfel. We'll share the link on our Instagram and Twitter pages. We're at AJ the Take. And if you've been following us this summer, you'll know that The Take has done quite a few episodes already about the anti-racism movement in the U.S., and we'll continue to cover it. So if you've got ideas for a solution, person, or moment we should cover, get in touch. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilbe, with me, Malika Bilal, Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Nagin Oliai, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and Oni Wohacha. Natalia Aldana is the team's engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.